Peter's War is used to describe the 116 years England and France were at war. From 1337 to 1453, the two kingdoms duked it out. First, the status of the Duchy of Aquitaine belonged to England, but remained a fief of the French crown, so England wanted sole possession. Second, the last closest relative to the Capetian king Charles IV died in 1328, so the kings of England have had claim over the French crown. For the most part of this time, French kings possessed a large portion, some say the most, financial, military, and populated powerful state in Western Europe, hence having advantage over England. But even though the French had more money and more bodies, the English were more skilled with longbow, stopping cavalry charges. As seen in many sieges like Cressy in 1346, Poitiers in 1356, and much later again in Agincourt, King John of France, though unwillingly, accepted the Treaty of Calais granting independence to Aquitaine, his son Charles V reconquering most of what his father lost by 1360. So why did the Hundred Years' War happen? Let's start where it began. King Charles IV of France died with no heirs, so there was no succession to the throne. Edward III, one of the great Plantagenet kings, popped over and said, hey, I'm related to the Capetian, I'm the heir, and assumed the throne in 1337. The French obviously disagreed and went on to do so for 116 years, creating the Hundred Year War. Jump forward a bit, we are still in the Hundred Years' War, fighting over the French throne's rightful king. After the signed Treaty of Calais and more back and forth fighting of land, over in England, Henry IV died in 1413, and the 26-year-old Prince Henry V was crowned. Henry started making demands of France, starting with the return of Aquitaine to England that Charles V gained back. This back and forth fighting over this section of France lasted forever. On top of this generation-long land fight, Henry also demanded a two million crown payment, then for Charles V's daughter Catherine's hand and marriage. And, like any king of England with eyes set on France, gathered his army in 1415 and sailed to meet the French. After Charles said no to Henry's marriage to his daughter, the dowry, and all of her dukedoms, Henry begins his siege to Hoffler. The siege was not easy as most of his men were suffering from disease. The presence of soldiers, their horses, animals, the close proximity, and all their combined waste with lack of clean drinking water led to waterborne diseases like dysentery. Not to mention, Henry's army was flooded by Harfleur, who had a defense through water. They opened their sewers and flooded the field the English soldiers were camping on, adding to the already blighted, polluted land. Even though the siege looked grim and not possible for Henry's army, men guarding the miners who were digging under Harfleur's walls found an outer ditch to the town where they then discharged missiles. Catapults and stone throwers finally broke through. Not long after, Henry conquered Harfleur, his army marched on to gain more French territories by force. He was headed to Calais, but on the trail there started the Battle of Agincourt. After the damage Harfleur had done to Henry's army, sending almost half the soldiers home due to illness, left Henry with only 5,000 knights. Agincourt left him deeply outnumbered by more than half. But Henry's knights were equipped with plate armor and two-handed swords, the English and Welsh archers armed with stronger bows and arrows, more powerful than their grandfathers and great-grandfathers before them under Edward III and the Black Prince. Henry sent a messenger to Calais demanding the French forces stand down, but on the 5th of October, the English marched on, finding the French waiting. The French stayed their course, and Henry ordered his men to sharpen staves to form barriers around the fighters and the archers. But this did nothing, as the French had crossed the English's route, getting ahead of them due to a 
delay the English had on the Somme. By the 25th of October, the Feast of St. Crispin and the public holiday in England, the English pushed yet again. Henry's quick thinking, changing the archers' positions, concealing men in the woods behind the muddy lands, left the French confused. And even though the French outnumbered Henry's army, lost the advantage they thought they had. Within two hours after the battle began, it was clear the English were gaining the upper hand. But while this battle was going on, Henry's soldiers had broken the laws of war and captured French soldiers holding them prisoner. And though prisoners of war were not breaking laws, executing them was. Cleaning up the remnants of the French forces whose soldiers were stuck in the mud and caught in the woods, the Battle of Agincourt ended midday. Now I may not have made this battle sound as epic as it was, if you want epic, listen to Agincourt by Ken Thario, and you'll get epic. Henry, now successfully sieging Harfleur and Agincourt, continued on to Calais as if nothing happened, returning to England to celebrate their victory. By 1417, Henry attacked France yet again, capturing Caen and Normandy. After the six-month siege of Rouen, refusing to aid the 12,000 expelled residents left to starve between the city walls and the English troops in 1420, King Charles VI sued for peace. The Treaty of Troyes gave Henry control of France until his death, where Henry was also promised the French throne. Henry married Catherine, arriving in 1421 with their only son and future King Henry VI. Two years later, Henry won his last victory, the Siege of Meaux, and died in August of 1422 of battlefield dysentery. Here we end this segment with Henry V's son taking the English-French throne, becoming King Henry VI at less than a year old. By 1461, when the king was able to actually sit on the throne and, well, be a king, Henry lost most of the French territories his father had gained with all of those sieges, and England was riven by the War of the Roses. Shortly after Agincourt ended, but before Henry VI assumed the throne, in 1428 the English sought to assert his claim to the French throne through the Treaty of Troyes. The English held northern France with Burgundian allies, 6,000 soldiers in Calais and another 4,000 in Normandy, in the Siege of Orleans. Having isolated Orleans, Salisbury gathered his forces together. While Orleans is located on the north side of the river, the English troops were confronted on the south banks. The fortified compound and the twin-towered gatehouse Les Tourelles directed their efforts to said locations. This aided the English in driving the French out, as this apparently was the advantage. While the English were defending their stronghold, Salisbury was mortally wounded when surveying the French positions. He was replaced by a much less aggressive Sir William Glasdale and a smaller force held Torrells. It wasn't long until the English were weakened and open to the French. Their lines weak surrounding the Church of Laurent, their commander attempting to build and fortify forts to keep whatever strength they had left was proved futile as again, their troops were weakened and there were not enough bodies. Paris lays deep in English territories in this part of the story, and as the siege is going, an 18-year-old woman who was raised in Domremy Bar, a small village in northeastern France near the borders controlled by the English, approached Charles VI with divine visions. Due to the location of Paris, King Charles was forced to set up a makeshift fort at Chinon on the Loire River. From the age of 13, Joan of Arc had visions and claimed to have heard voices of Saint Michael, Saint Catherine of Alexandria, and Saint Margaret of Antioch. The messages she was receiving from above urged her to seek out the man who was the rightful king of France, Charles VI. Once, Joan traveled to Chinon to explain her divine mission, but was turned away. A year later, while the Siege of Orleans is still raging, Joan travels again to the court of Charles VI, and the theologians allow her presence with the king. Here, she explains her need to be out with the French troops, pushing the soldiers on banishing the English from France, and she tells him of her prophecy of Charles' coronation. Now that 
this is laid out, enter Joan of Arc, the 18-year-old mascot to the French troops. Sent by Charles with Duke of Alençon with supplies to support her now army, she arrives at Orleans. Her forces moved along the south bank and met with Jean de Dunois, who assumed control of the defense when the English reinforcements were at its weakest. The supply for the English had been cut off and attacked while en route to the Battle of Herrings, causing supplies and provisions to run low during the Siege of Orleans. Here, the French fortunes begin to change when in February, Orleans begged to be put under the Duke of Burgundy's protection, but this only angered the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, causing them to pull their men out further, weakening the English. With the English lines weakened, Joan of Arc finally entered Orleans on April 29th, and over the next few days, she pushed the army she brought with her. Finally, on March 4th, the units moved against the fort at St. Loup. The intended diversion became a larger engagement while Joan joined the fighting, and the English were unsuccessful in relieving their troops. The English commanders consolidated their positions south of the Loire and Le Tourelles complex. More units and more fighting clashing at intersecting points around the compound, causing the English to yet again retreat to Les Augustines. Over the course of a week, the English had withdrawn, except for one garrison at Tourelles. Joan, the French commanders, and some of her soldiers joined east of Tourelles and began the assault on Englishmen again around 8 a.m. The garrison held strong, and the French seemed unable to break through. While the soldiers fought, Joan was injured and was demanded to leave the battlefield. With casualties mounting, the debate of calling off the attack was thick, but Joan of Arc rallied her troops by convincing them to push on. The appearance of her banners, as well as herself showing up again on the field, encouraged the men, and finally, the French broke through. On the opposite side, a fire was burning the drawbridge to Tourelles. The English began to collapse, and by nightfall, the entire complex had been taken by the French. Defeated on every bank at this point, the English tried attempting a formation similar to the Siege of Crecy, and invited Joan's army out, but she counseled against it. By the end of the siege, when it was apparent to the English army that the French had won and would not leave Orleans, they withdrew, ending the siege. Joan and her army, successful at winning Orleans, embarked on another's campaign, which saw Joan's forces drive English from the region in a series of battles which culminated at Pate. Support for Joan was galvanized when she dressed as a warrior, especially after the Siege of Orleans, and more French victories like her troops yet again pummeling the English at Pate. And in the following July, Charles VI was crowned in the presence of Joan, the young prophet who predicted the event. Even though Joan of Arc was the mascot for the Siege of Orleans and several battles after, while also prophesizing the coronation of Charles VI, she was burned at the stake as a heretic not long after. In May of 1430, Joan was leading yet another military expedition against the English, and this time the militia had several setbacks. While on expedition, Joan of Arc was captured by Burgundian soldiers sold to the English who tried her for heresy. Suddenly, her claims of divine visions were weakened. Her journey that was supposedly sent from God was now questionable. How could could an envoy of God fall so easily into enemy hands? Those who supported her continued to, and those that did not, dug their heels in and spurred more hatred. If God didn't send her, who or what was she? The religious doubts of Joan's sanctity blended right into higher politics. If the voices she claimed came from angels and God was in fact demonic, her whole cause, as well as Charles VI's coronation, had been work of the devil. From this point, it was a war of words. No longer would Joan of Arc's battles be that of sharp steel and folly of arrows, but rather rather defending her faith as well as her sexuality. While her continued supporters emphasized her purity, her enemies demanded she was a harlot. Her journey to the stake was now underway. Along the accusations of being not sent by God but the devil, she was accused of violating divine law by dressing as a man and bearing arms, deceiving the people by convincing them she was sent by God, and finally heresy. A few days later, the Bishop of Bouvet added charges of witchcraft. On the 21st of February, Joan answered to her charges, and though many contemporaries believe the tribunal asked 
ask Joan very difficult, subtle, and misleading questions that many clerics and educated men would have had problems answering. But she knew how to defend herself. If Joan answers no to being in God's grace, she would be lying. If she answered yes, she would be arrogantly placing herself beyond the authority of the church. So instead, she answered, If I am not in the state of grace, may God put me there. If I am, may God keep me there. Several weeks later, there was still no confession, and the charges of witchcraft were forced to be dropped for heresy instead. At the beginning of April, a list that dropped from 70 down to 12 accusations was approved and submitted to the University of Paris. Joan was found to be a liar and invoker of evil spirits. Her visions were not from angels but from Satan. Her wearing men's clothing was unnatural and wicked. She was found to be a heretic. On May 24th, Joan of Arc was taken to the stake. It was said that the sight frightened her so much she declared she would hand herself over to the authorities and dress as a woman, with her sentence being dropped to life in prison. But when the judges went to visit Joan four days later, they found her again in men's clothing, spouting visions given by God. This reaction was everything the accusers wanted, and though Joan admitted she was dressing as a man to hide from the soldiers who were raping and assaulting her, the bishop and clerics held firm and carried out their charges. On May 30th, 1431, Joan was taken to the stake yet again, and as she was burned, it was reported you could hear her repeatedly proclaiming the name of Jesus. Twenty years later, Joan's case was brought to Charles, resulting in the sentence of her being a heretic overturned. Her importance to the French people was further solidified when in 1920, Joan of Arc was made a saint. And that was Joan of Arc and the Hundred Years' War. Thank you for listening.